Talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are discussing an Uwe Rosenberg new classic game, AFO. Is known as a feast for Odin. <laughs> is that what it is? I always just see Afo popping so, up. The cool kids just call it Afo. That's right. That's the yeah. abbreviation. But yeah, this is a, <laughs> a, a very exciting episode, a very exciting game, and I am looking forward to our conversation, which will take place imminently. But first, for our pre planners, those who like to play games along with us to hopefully get a little bit more out of these deep dive discussions, you should know that the next game we'll be covering right here on Decision Space is an old classic known only as T&E. Time and Equity. Tigris and Euphrates, of course, by Reiner Knizia. And following that, we will be doing the first game that was not picked by us ever on this podcast. This game was, in fact, chosen by our Patreon uh, supporters. So thank you so much to all eight of our Patreon supporters. Uh, if you are interested in joining that group and helping to uh, direct our, our voyages into decision space land, you can follow the link in our show notes uh, to do that or just go to patreon.com slash decision space. But anyway, that game is Great Western Trail uh, by Alexander Fister. So very much looking forward to those two games coming to you in the very near future. All right, Brendan, should we just get right into it as we always do by providing our ratings and a brief slogan for the game at hand today? I think so. I'm going to go with A Feast for Odin is a remarkable achievement. Standing back and awing at this game is constantly what I'm doing when I'm playing it. As a just tremendous feat of game design it constantly has me amazed that the game works that it's as elegant and beautiful as it is and that there's so many different ways to play despite these things the game oftentimes leaves me feel feeling a little bit alone in my play a little bit secluded off in my own puzzle more than i wish it did Uh, like a like a lonely viking stuck in a village of my own choosing rather than a viking a part of an epic saga playing out amongst others in the shame shared real simulated world Uh, and for that reason i think a feast for odin is a solid eight out of ten for me but i completely see why it is a timeless classic awesome thank you brendan uh and for me i'm gonna bump that up a little bit i think for me I'm going to give A Feast for Odin a very solid 9.5 out of 10. I absolutely love this game. And I mean, we'll talk much more about it. But my slogan for this is just that A Feast for Odin is decadence for the Eurogamer. You know, if you are someone who likes Euro games, you like these efficiency puzzles, you like uh, collecting resources and and turning them into bigger and better things, building out your individual player board. Like it doesn't get more decadent to use that word again than a feast for Odin. It just has everything you could possibly want. And then some, it's just like a beautiful box of chocolates. Every time I look at that action selection uh, board or menu uh, and to me, that's just plain fun. And for that reason, it's been the game I've picked among over all other games to play for my birthday game for the past couple of years. And I, I think that's a tradition I want to continue because I just find this game so joyous. It's a good birthday game. I'll give you that. It's it's a great birthday game. Okay, so this game, we talked about it, designed by Uwe Rosenberg. And it was originally published by Z-Man in 2016. And though we won't delve too deeply into it, right, Jake, you do have experience with the Norwegian's expansion follow up in 2018, which a lot of people say is almost essential for the game. So maybe we will talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I don't know that we'll get too into the differences between the two, but I'm definitely in the the camp that says uh, this expansion, the Norwegian feels more like a patch to the Mm. original game than like adding expanded content. There is expanded content, but like only in 
like the most minuscule way of just like a little bit more options in terms of islands, a little bit more in different resources and uh, action selection board that just seems to work out a little bit uh, better, just more balanced between like what are the, the best actions to take and the worst ones. So I absolutely would recommend uh, that everyone should try if possible to play this game with the Norwegian's expansion, even if it's your very first game. And I think that my experiences with the Norwegian is baked into that rating of 9.5. I guess I messed this up. We should have said what Uwe Rosenberg has also done, because I think talking about this game, there's a certain degree of context that is helpful. Uh, So Uwe Rosenberg, his first published game, or his first major hit, Bonanza in 1997, and then followed it up with another modern classic, Agricola, which was much, much later, 10 years later, in 2007, a bunch of games published in between there. Then he had Le Havre in 2008, Patchwork in 2014, and then he's had a bunch of games all the time since. Uwe Rosenberg is one of the most sort of prolific designers of our time who really does this pastoral farming theme and has pushed that through his design. It's a thread through that runs up through everything he does and oftentimes has this feeding mechanic that plays into these games. Uh, other more recent games that my, you might have heard of are Nova Luna Hallertau, Cottage Garden, and seriously, way too many more. <laughs> yeah, I, I really want to check out more of these because my uh, experience with Uwe's games is shamefully minuscule. I've played Feast for Odin a lot. I've played Patchwork a lot. We also covered that on this show. So if you're interested in hearing our, our in-depth thoughts on Patchworks, highly recommend you go back and check out that episode. Have you played Bonanza? I have not. And I think beyond that, I've played Agricola once on Board mm. Game Arena, and that's it. Another big game of his, Fields of Arl, one that I think has been gaining more and more of a reputation of being a really solid game, especially among solo gamers, which tells me that you might really like it, just because I think there's not a ton of interaction going on. Uh, It's a one or two player game, which is basically like you could just play it next to someone and you'll probably enjoy it, Um, which I have thoughts about. But I, that's on Yukata, so maybe that's one we could look at in the future. And I, I, I wonder if you'd like Bonanza. We're, I'm getting us off topic, but I think you would like it, despite it being very different compared to a lot of Uwe Rosenberg's other games. Clearly, he has a well-earned reputation for a reason, um, and, and I would definitely jump at the opportunity to really try any of his games if given the opportunity. But enough about those games. Let's get back to the game at hand, A Feast for Odin, uh, published in, in 2016. One to four players. And Brendan, did you want to share a little bit about the the history of this design from the designer? I know yeah, you've done would, a little research on it. I would love to. So I found this really awesome interview with Uwe Rosenberg. And we'll publish a link both on our blog post on BGG to this interview and maybe in the show notes of this podcast. And I recommend anyone who wants a little bit more information on the history of uh, a Feast for Odin's design and also just Uwe Rosenberg's design process in general. This interview that I found is awesome. So I recommend you read it. But to sort of summarize, I think b- before Patchwork came out and before A Feast for Odin came out, Uwe Rosenberg was sitting around thinking about what he wanted his next games to be. And Agricola, which we mentioned, is this huge, very important modern Euro design that sort of has you doing these these different things in your your little farm collecting animals uh, crops and all these sorts of things and in that game in within agricola animals were abstracted when you had a car uh you would have a sheep and sheep might be worth two or uh two points and boars might be worth three and uve rosenberg thought what if i made those more tangible what if i made them more physical and i could make sheep a two by one tile and boars could be a three by one tile. And then those would physically represent more thematically what I was trying to represent with those cards and the costing of those could map directly onto something. So it's this idea of taking these physical, uh, taking these ideas from his previous designs and literally mapping them onto physical objects to represent their value rather than assigning a number value to them directly. So from this idea, he sort of, had this huge explosion of different game ideas that came out of them, Patchwork being one of them, which became a simpler version of this design where the costing of and the value of those tiles got printed directly on them. In Patchwork, you have buttons. That's the economic potential of those cards. And then the sort of opposite end was a Feast for Odin, where instead of the income that could be generated from your objects 
being printed on them, you would print the income on the spaces that you're trying to cover up with them. So that's where we see the income track diagonally through many different boards, both your home board and the exploration boards of a Feast for Odin. So it's just really interesting. We won't go much more into it than that, but to sort of have that history of where this game come from, came from and what he was thinking about in terms of trying to make more literal a part of his games that has already always been a little bit more abstracted. That's really interesting. I had heard previously that um, Patchwork and I think like Summer Meadow or something like that uh, were, and maybe another one were these like tile placement games that came out of his iterative design process, essentially like an artist's like study before putting together uh, their, you know, masterpiece. Um, but the, the, the idea that the whole kind of core idea of filling up your player boards came out of like imposing points onto objects is such a cool idea. And I mean, we'll talk about it, but is really the thing I think that holds this entire design together. Um, but let's give people a little bit of a better idea of what exactly we're talking about here. Brendan, with your pre-recorded rules overview. So interdecisional spaceship, hit it. Feast for Odin is a Viking epic that invites players into a simulation of their own Viking community. Styled as a low-interaction worker placement game, a Feast for Odin's supporting framework is twofold. First, it has a central action board featuring 61 spaces, offering players different actions they might send their Vikings off to do in a given round. For example, hunting, shipbuilding, resource gathering, trading, crafting, animal husbandry, raiding, pillaging, house building, whaling, forging, exploration, immigration, and more. And second, players use a home board that depicts the core of each player's Viking community. This board contains a bay with docks for ships players will build, a banquet hall used to manage a feeding and feast phase that occurs at the end of each round, and a thing square where players use tiles they collect through interaction with the action board to fill in their square with goods such as chests, swords, cloth, shirts, jewelry, etc., which increase their income and gain some victory points as they cover up more and more squares on their boards with these thing tiles. The game also features a card-driven occupation system that signposts potential strategic paths and slightly modifies actions they might take. It's difficult to summarize the totality of A Feast for Odin because there's simply so much a player can do to interact with the game's systems, but the core gameplay loop is rather simple. A Feast for Odin is played over the course of seven rounds. Each round, players take turns sending their Vikings off to a space on the action board, where more powerful spaces generally require more Vikings to use. For example, some spaces require just one viking to activate, while others require four vikings. Once everyone has played all their vikings to these action spaces, they have the opportunity to add tiles they've collected from using the action board to their home board, uh, houses they've built, or boards depicting new lands they've explored increasing their income and money and potentially in goods that they'll receive in the form of tiles to add to their boards again in subsequent turns as well. At the end of the round, players host a feast for their Vikings, forcing them to fill in their banquet tables with red and yellow food tiles to feed their community. Then a new round begins in which players have access to one additional Viking and also have one additional mouth to feed at the end of the round. Core to a feast for Odin are the tile placement mechanics that rule over players adding new tiles to their boards. Every tile in the game comes in one of four colors orange, red, green, and blue, each increasingly more difficult to collect than the previous type, but less restrictive in its placement rules, which themselves are dictated by the board of players adding the tile to. For example, only green and blue and special gray tiles may be added to a player's home board, and green tiles may not be placed adjacent to other green tiles. Navigating the spatial puzzle of fitting goods efficiently into your home boards and other boards you collect through play is key to playing A Feast for Odinwell. At the end of the game's seven rounds, the player who's lived the most epic Viking life, i.e. has the most victory points, is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan, for taking the time to do that. Obviously, it would be impossible for you to cover everything in a game as sprawling and massive as A Feast for Odin, but hopefully that gives people a little bit of a better idea of some of the main uh, concepts and, and main uh, gameplay mechanisms that we're going to be talking about in the rest of this episode. I hope so. I did my best. I think we'll have to cover things in depth where they matter. And then beyond that, just knowing that it's a tile lane game where you're trying to cover up stuff with tiles 
uh, I think is the biggest thing. And I definitely spoke to that. So we'll do our best from there. There's some little nuanced rules, like how the tiles end up being placed adjacently in the puzzle of the game that I think we'll, we'll unpick as the conversation goes on. That sounds great. Will you just do me the favor of letting me know if you think we're getting to an area where you think maybe we could linger a little bit more on the rules yeah. explanation uh, because you know pull back the curtain here i've not actually yet heard brendan's uh rules overview i'm just giving him credit ahead of time because i know that he's done a good job what no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, should we characterize this decision space jake let's do it uh, so go for it sorry Okay, so I think, as we normally do, we'll start with the type of decision space at play here, and maybe it's just because of the massive scope of this game and how many different things are going on. It it seems really hard for me to categorize it as a single type. Mm, Interesting. So so maybe that makes it overall dynamic, but I I feel like it's waxing in the sense that you gain more workers to use over the course of the game making individual rounds become a little bit more complex and you actually have a little bit more options on how to use those workers uh the the spaces that require three and four workers become i think a lot more viable later in the game when you just have more workers at your disposal uh so that that feels like waxing uh but it feels waning when you think about you have like a limited space on your player board that you're trying to fill in. But then, of course, you can get additional boards, which kind of makes it waxing again. And the last thing I'll say, I know you're trying to jump in, is that like maybe the worker placement aspect of the game, just because there are so many options afforded to you, it doesn't really feel like those wane very much based on what other people are doing. To your point at the at the beginning with your synopsis of the game feeling like you're kind of alone doing this. And so in some ways I feel like the actual worker placement aspect of this game, despite everything feels very static. Mm, That's really interesting. So before our conversation, I, I think I characterize this game as a waxing decision space game. If only because it's a game built around that positive agency feedback that we talk about being so closely tied into a lot of waxing decision space games, right? Your income is going up. You're getting more workers. Like you said, you're even getting more tiles. And I think this would be inverted in my mind if you didn't have the ability to constantly be getting new boards that you can put your tiles onto and that the game really pushes that, right? Like the more you, from my experience, it seems like a really beneficial strategic path through the game and there's so many different ways to play a feast for odin which i think is maybe why we're having trouble just saying oh yeah it's obviously this because there's different ways to approach a given play that might make it feel a little different which is really cool but i think overall the whole arc if i had to pick one i would say it's waxing just because i think your decision space is growing over the course of the game and even in part because your home board the way the income is working you're almost disincentivized from really filling up your home board first like the income boost of exploring and then using the higher income payoffs of an ex- exploration board early on always give you this release valve on your home board of like, oh, I need to get really big pieces and fill this in. I need to do the forging or I need to go go pillaging and get those meaty gray tiles so I can be more efficient. I still haven't gotten the crown. I'm so pissed. No matter what I do, <laughs> so I say that we're playing in parallel, but I still haven't gotten that crown from pillaging, and it's so frustrating. It's that juicy crown. I just want to add it to my homeboard. That's really funny. It's interesting because I see what you're saying about overall waxing when you think about just like in relation to your home board and spaces. Though I will say I've been in situations towards the end of the game where like I haven't been able to get. Mm the exploration boards that I've wanted and I am literally out of space to place anything else. So I'm like, okay, I've, I've miscalculated and now I'm just trying to like maximize points some other less efficient way. So that can happen in which case it feels like your decisions have waned considerably. But the point I was going to make is that like, while you're, gr- it's true, you're growing in income, you're getting more tile more bonuses, getting more goods at the beginning of each turn, uh, and you have more workers, like all those things. Uh, and I want to give credit. Uh, this was actually a discussion um, that I, I heard on the Board Game Barrage podcast about things mm. 
that make you feel powerful in games. And uh, Neilan, one of the hosts over there, uh, who we had hoped was be able to join us for this episode, but sadly was unable to, um, made the point that it's kind of a trick in A Feast for Odin, uh, where you're getting an extra worker every single turn, which makes it feel like you're really ramping up and doing much more, but you're not actually you know, doing anything to get that additional strength. It's just like a time release. So I do agree. Like you definitely feel like you're getting more and more powerful over the course of the game, which is a hallmark of games that we've considered waxing in the past. But I think when I'm taking my turn, I might have more resources. But when I'm just looking at this giant slate of actions, like from the first time I'm doing it to the mid game to towards the end of the game, like it doesn't feel too tremendously different of a decision space. I feel like I'm always sort of deciding between a relatively small number of viable spaces, like, Mm. you know, three or four. And it kind of doesn't matter really what resources I have at that particular moment so much. I wonder if a part of that too, Jake, is because of the really clever way that the action board is laid out where every there's basically rows for all the different types of actions and then columns that dictate how many workers vikings that you send to them and then there's an associated rough power level with each of those so the first row column excuse me takes one viking the second takes two the third takes three and then the final one takes four the norwegian's expansion kind of mixes this up a little bit i know but i wonder if part of that is that as your vikings grow right you're just kind of shifting what you're doing with them a little bit those that first row of single viking actions always stay very appealing because they're really efficient in a lot of ways but you like towards the end of the game your turns just kind of shift so the number of actions you're doing overall sometimes feels about the same i wonder if that's sort of what you're getting at. Right. i don't think that's always the case um but it's something kind of close it's in the ballpark it doesn't yeah. explode in potential right i just mean like when you're when we're talking about the dynamics of a decision space like what we're talking about is really the number of viable decisions you can make. And I think it doesn't map one-to-one with getting more resources. I think you're right that it does grow slightly. uh, And having one goal at your disposal is going to open up a bunch of spaces to you. Having three gold, maybe a few more, but having a hundred gold doesn't mean you have like a lot more options, right? It's really restrained in, um, yeah, by the way the action placement spaces work and what you're hoping to accomplish at that given time to where I don't feel like, Oh man, now I can do, I have like 20 viable things. It it always feels like a pretty tightly bound number over the course of the game for me. And I think that's kind of the point I'm getting at. And I think that's also something that makes this game feel surprisingly fun and approachable for, for new players, even compared to, uh, some of uh, Uwe Rosenberg's more restrained designs. Like I think that this game, just having played Agricola once, like Agricola felt a lot more almost like overwhelming to me mm-hmm. than this. Why do you think that you you're feeling the the focus? Right, you're given at least you're given sixty one options, choices of things that you can do on a given turn. Right just in terms of the action spaces. And then there's other things you can do, like spend money to build ships. Uh, Why do you feel like there's this sense of, you feel like there's a relatively few focused things that you could be doing? Is it the way that the action spaces are built to sort of push you through? First, you're going to do shipbuilding, then you're going to build sheds and houses or other things to push them in? Or or what do you think is motivating sort of those feelings? Yeah, I think the motivation, and this is, I I like that term because it kind of recalls our conversation we had last week about objectives in games yeah and i think the reason uh, that it can that i at least the way my brain works that i can cut through a lot of the noise of the decision space is because uh there's like one pretty clear objective that runs throughout everything which is the puzzle of filling up your player board or your expansion boards uh to try and basically gain income and and unlock bonuses throughout the game so a lot of what thematically is happening in the game is you can really like just run it through uh, a little kind of converter and be like okay this space this if i take this action i get nine squares worth of 
resources. Uh, if I take this one, I get six, you know, and I think in many other cases, it'd be like, okay, this would give me like one or two. Uh, and I, and I think that a lot of times like just doing that kind of heuristic, hmm. uh, puzzle or process or whatever can really cut out a lot of the noise, at least for me. What about, okay, we're getting into strategy, which I think is probably fine, but (laughs) what about the upgrading spaces? How much, so I find when I play this game, that one frustrating thing that I have a hard time valuing, right? The fuzziness comes in of how important is it to try to upgrade my tiles so that I can get them adjacent to each other, right? Obviously there's certain restrictions of like, if I have houses, I'm gonna be using red and yellow tiles to build into those houses. Um, and I'm going to try to avoid putting other things in them because it, I want to use the cheapest viable tiles to build in any space that I can. But it's so tempting to me. There's these spaces, right, Jake, that let you upgrade as many green tiles that you have as long as they're not matching to blue tiles. And I see that and my brain just goes like, whoa, this is so efficient, quote unquote, for this game. I can just do as many as I can of different types. So, But I think I've over relied in my play on this because... Ultimately, like you're saying, the puzzle of the game is not needing to go to that outlet. It'd be better mm-hmm. if I would just always had my green tiles next to blue tiles on my home board, um, which themselves were next to green and sort of perfectly puzzled together. Um, and I found that for whatever reason, maybe I'm, j- I'm just taking the lazy Viking way out and I'm like, I'll just make them all blue and then I'll shove them in here, have some gray ones in between because th- they're easy and you could just slot them in and they're big. So they're juicy. Um, I feel like this game lets you make the puzzly element as easy or difficult as you want, which I think is a really interesting way to deal with the inherent complexity of it. Yeah, I mean, I could offer another just like heuristic that people could use for the strategy. Uh, The way I think about upgrading is I basically do it only when I need to. And if you think about playing this game efficiently, you would really never put two blue tiles next to each other. Maybe you Uh, wouldn't. (laughs) but i'm just i'm not saying that ideally can't achieve this but ideally playing it perfectly because uh it it takes more time and resources to get blue tiles uh which uh as a reminder you can place next to any type of tile in your board even other blue ones then green tiles which can also go to fill up your shed but can't be adjacent to another green tile but they're cheaper and easier to get so ideally to fill up your space, it would be like green, blue, green, blue, green, blue. Because if you have two blue right next to each other, like whatever cost or of time or resource associated to make that second tile blue instead of green is just lost efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. I have a question, Jake. Do you think that taking into consideration both the breadth of decisions and the depth of decisions, A Feast for Odin is the largest decision space game we've ever covered in a feature episode on the show? Not to put you on the spot now that we've covered over 50 games or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, it's such yeah. an interesting game. The, the other game that immediately springs to mind as a contender is Underwater Cities. Mm. I think I think that one could be up there. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's such an interesting test of our definition of what decision space is because there is no question that of all the games we've covered... Um, a feast for Odin gives you the most options on your yeah. turn, right? You Huge mentioned, number of choices. Yeah, and, and and everything is good, right? There's everything is going to benefit you uh, and get you points in some way. It's not like some of the spaces are like lose five gold. You know that's not that's not uh, how the game works. So it really comes down to the fact that. Like, how much of that can you eliminate entirely? And as you mentioned, I think it the game gives you a lot of shortcuts to do that. Uh, I, I mentioned kind of the heuristics of filling in your board. So you can just think about like getting the most area in terms of literal uh, squares of resources as an easy way to do that. But also all the actions are separated by type. So if you could say like, all right, I have plenty of resources, so I don't need to go to the resource station now. Um, you know, I don't need to care about objectives because I don't have any, or not objectives, uh, occupations, because I don't have any occupations in my hand or uh, none that I want to play, right? So it gives you this ability to look at the menu and just like cross out 
huge swaths of it. Mm. And then you have, you know, X number of workers. Um, and especially in the base game without the Norwegian, a lot of the spaces are just like obsolete, not a lot, but there's at least a few instances where uh, spaces are just obsoleted by uh, a cheaper costing one. So they're like in the hunting portion of the game, uh, there, there are two yep. uh, types of hunts you can go on. One can, you can do that costs just a single worker and the other the exact same accent costs two workers. So, you know, it's really easy. Say I want to do hunting, you know, I can look at what's available and, you know, without much thought, eliminate more there to the point where I think when I play this game and I'm not, I'm not like a super, super expert. I've probably played this game around a dozen times between the 10 or so plays I've done on board game arena and the three or four I've done in person. Um, But I feel like when I'm playing the game, the decision space truly feels very manageable and moderate closer to like a midweight Euro game than the heavy, crazy, heavy, complex Euro game that you might expect a feast for Odin to be just because you looked at it taking up your entire dining room table at your house. I think there's a lot of comfort in that too, in terms of how we perceive the decision space, right? Because you you get the sensation of navigating this objectively very, very large decision space. We've talked in the past about subjective and objective decision spaces, right? Objectively, this is huge just in the terms of options that you have. So in terms of choices, this might this is definitely the biggest turn by turn, the largest decision space I think we've covered, right? Just in sheer number of choices given to you, yes, massive. So the objective decision space is very large, but in terms of the subjective decision space, it feels tighter. And I think that psychologically, that's doing something really interesting. And I think there's lots of really interesting psychological tricks that Uwe is playing on his players to, like you said, make us feel powerful and successful and feel this this sense of, I think, um, like, there's there's just so much that you have. I don't want to say opulence, but um, you feel that the game is a feast, and it's a pun. the 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 title is a pun. It's a feast for your Vikings. It's a feast for you as a board game player. It's a feast of options in front of you. It works on so many different ways, and I think a lot of the design. I actually didn't mention in the interview the the first mechanic that always remembers going to was that table, the banquet table that you have to fill in at the end of each turn because it takes the feeding mechanism of Agricola and makes it literal. All of a sudden you can have spaces representing mouths that you have to feed and how you orient your tiles into that becomes interesting of how you have to feed them. And I think that it's so interesting how this game offers you a feast and then makes it easy to digest a lot. So much of the design is sort of saying, go in this direction or go in this direction. And I find that the signposting is actually really, really helpful. Um, It's much more linear than a lot of, uh, I think, more moderately sized objectively smaller decision spaces that we've covered um, because it can be because you get the sensation of exploring the complexity just because, oh my gosh, I could lose myself in all these spaces. And when you first start playing, you do. And quickly you get there and then you feel so smart. And I think that's such a good trick of this game um, that if it weren't like that, if it was 61 viable decisions every turn, oh, forget it. It's too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What you said just made me think of another way that the game reduces the overhead and the overwhelmingness of the decisions, which is like there are paths to go down in the game. And so based on previous decisions made that's going to make different spaces on the board better or worse for you uh so that again sort of reduces that number of you know crazy overwhelming options to you know a scant few viable decisions like i often find myself really on like the majority of turns of the game it's like debating between like three or four things i think part of that too is like okay so let's say i'm I'm deciding when I'm going to build boats. Okay, right. I'm either I'm either building the the Nars or I'm building the the slightly better ones that push me more towards pillaging or I'm, maybe I'll build some whaling ships and then early on I'm going to go towards whaling because those become really efficient. Once you make a few decisions, you get pushed down these paths and then you just push on that pedal and pursue it. it and it goes to did I get an exploration board? Okay, then I'm trying to get bigger tiles that I need to fill those in. So I need to get big green ones or big blue ones and try to fill those in. Or am I building longhouses? Great. I can get food and efficiently fill these in to be getting more bonus tiles. Like right. once you make one decision, it 
the game signposts really clearly. Right. It's some of the exploration board gives you a lot of food bonuses. So that makes you want to build more longhouses. Yeah. Also, we didn't even mention the occupations uh, are can kind of give you a special power that might also incentivize you to take certain actions to get an extra bonus because of the occupation you have. Uh, so really, like so much of this game is, you know, working to help direct players to get their arms around this massive uh, slate of options into a, a decision space that becomes like manageable and fun to explore. And also, I think what makes the the feel of the decision space in A Feast for Odin so uniquely awesome is that like more so than I think any other game we've uh, covered, like you have so much input into creating the type of decision space you want to explore in the game, right? No, absolutely. And I think one thing that I really wanted to cover that kind of fuses these two points and plays into what you just talked about, right? The idea that Uwe Rosenberg's playing a lot of psychological tricks on the player that's helping them experience something really specific through play. And two, doing a lot of things within the design to ease the experience, to give you room to sort of explore the space flexibly. It's not supposed to be harsh, which kind of juxtaposes with the theme because I think of Viking life as kind of being harsh, but that might be my perspective as, I don't know. But is the idea of the feast itself, right? That feeding phase. I think before I learned a feast for Odin, I had this this vague understanding. I have not played Agricola. I would love to. I think we need to cover it on the show at some point, just given its stature within board games and modern board games and the sort of lineage. But I know that feeding mechanisms in that game are really harsh. It's hard to feed your family. It can be incredibly punishing. And I expected like when I first learned this game, okay, the feast and feeding my Vikings is going to be a really important aspect of this game. I'm going to have to prepare and find food and it's going to be difficult. No, it's not. Because Uwe Rosenberg says, here's all the food you need. During harvest, you essentially get the tiles that you would need to cover feeding almost one-to-one. Not quite, but so much so that it sort of says like, it's almost like this mechanism. Yes, it's important. Yes, you can be more efficient. Yes, it gives you more options. But it's almost like a system as theater, right? It's like the performance of feeding your of your people, right? Like it exists to, to be this uh, literal embodiment of what would be abstracted in other games. And then it, it doesn't want you to struggle there. It wants you to struggle with the puzzle on your player boards. So it just says, okay, here's all the stuff you need. It's a feast. Just feed them. Uh, use money. It doesn't matter. Here's some long pieces that will be really easy. I, I just, I'm fascinated by this, Jake. Like it's there as a feel good moment of like, I can feed my people. It's you easy. I'm doing it every time. Do you know what that made me think of when you're talking about that? It's like those like little toys you have for babies that are like a box with like different shapes cut to in put the top in, of yeah. it. And like you, and then you have the blocks that's like, and the star shape block, it goes here. You know, it's, it, and it's like, oh, like that, that felt good. Like I'm going to take this square one. Oh, yeah. I, I got the perfect square shape cut out for that one. It's like literally kind of as though Uve is doing that for us as adults playing this like expert level game though that's not totally fair because there are like some clever twists on on the feeding phase like in that you can do it more efficiently or less efficiently absolutely theoretically you never want you would never want to use a coin even though you can use a coin uh because that's that's basically saying like i'm taking a minus one instead of a minus three anytime you use a coin and also you never want to use a uh a, a food type or a good type that is not like an one, not a one by, by x. something yep. because any of the ones that are two by x or three by x that's just wasted squares that you're not efficiently allocating elsewhere in the board i think one of the real wins of the game too with that system jake is that many of the foods that would be bigger to me when i've seen them like the whale blubber you can get the red whale square that's a two by three like, yeah, you can hunk that down in front of your Vikings. Or but three by three, I think. Is it three by three? Yeah, Maybe you huge. don't want to plop that down on your on your feast table because like who wants to feast on blubber? You could if you really need to. But so failing in this game isn't not doing something. It's just doing it less efficiently, which right. helps raise the skill ceiling in a lot of ways um, and bring along the players. And the final thing I'll say on this is I think that more so than so many games we've played this works because of the expectation set by set by the physical object right like how large this is as board gamers we have this perception of how complex something will be based on its size of 
size of the physical object, which for better or worse, doesn't always isn't always borne out. But it, what Uwe Rosenberg is doing with the Feast for Odin is setting that expectation. And what Z-Man has done is setting that expectation by how large of an object they've created and then letting players, giving players the support they need to make it easier. So playing with that expectation actually makes you feel more powerful because it, I, I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? It's fascinating to me. You can't really fail. You can only do like better. <laughs> yeah, I've never. I'm not good at this game. I'm. I'm okay. I'm okay. I've gotten better. As You're getting better, more. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I've explored it more, I've improved, but I've never gotten the minus three penalty for not effectively feeding my people. It's not right. a real thing. It's in the rulebook because it has to be, but it's not something that's gonna typically happen to you. Yeah, it, and especially like playing in person. I mean, we've played been playing a lot on board game arena, right? Where I feel like it's like slightly more plausible there because like maybe you just like misclick or aren't paying attention to your resources because you're looking somewhere else. Sure. But like when you're doing this game on the table, you're you're constantly like manipulating and moving your piece around the board to try and make them fit, which is really satisfying. And it's like, you would never like leave the feast stuff aside. Out. Yeah. You, you just like, it wouldn't happen. Should we talk about some of the spaces themselves? Sure. Let's talk about some of like some of the action spaces yeah. and how they work. Yeah, let's do it. And I think like one of the really interesting ones here is hunting because that has uh and I guess you can pair that with raiding as well. Um uh, because it has a really unique element to the game compared to uh everything else which is that like actually allows for uh some Ran- input randomness mm-hmm. to determine the outcome of taking the space. So the way it works is when you do the hunting, uh, you roll an eight-sided die or a 12-sided die for doing whaling, and you need to get whatever result you roll down to zero in order for the the action to be successful. Uh, so if you roll a three in the hunting, uh, that means you'd have to discard three uh either wood or the bow and arrow weapon cards which are 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 card you're basically accruing one weapon at the beginning of each round of the game uh, and could get some through other ways as well or resources i think did you say that so for hunting you can discard wood it it is this is so fascinating i think when you see this box you don't expect this mechanism to be in it at all at least i didn't just coming from like okay this is like the most opulent euro game ever and here's an input randomness an output randomness dice rolling mechanism in it it is highly mitigatable you do get a kickback if you fail so it doesn't actually feel that bad failing but these locations are so enticing because they're so much more they're slightly more efficient than a lot of the other options offered which i think is another thing that just directs your eyes to it it's relatively easy to see when you start playing like oh these are really good at the start of the game i'm going to go to them um i think it's also this is another aside and i'm sorry for doing this but i think it's really interesting that all of the actions that are tied to some sort of like physical outward form of either like aggression or violence against the natural world or other people. So like hunting, trapping, whaling, and pillaging are all of the dice rolling mechanisms. Farming, crafting, resource collection. Those are all, those don't harm things in the world. And that's not a, I'm not using harm as a value judgment, just like a physical actual thing. I think it's interesting that all of those actions get grouped with dice rolling that there's there's like the inherent risk of that i'm just intrigued by that decision it's doing something and it's 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 interesting it does feel a little out of place but it also a lot of times are the most like memorable and exciting so fun when you're playing at the table and i love the fact that you can like do three Mm. rolls yeah Uh, and that creates this situation where like okay I, i rolled a four which means i can achieve this but it's really inefficient to achieve it so maybe i'll just take and i'd rather achieve it than not achieve it but i'd really rather roll a one or a two so like do i take that risk uh to roll a third time and it's just really funny playing at the table you know somebody's gonna be like any game with dice rolling somebody's gonna be rolling bad and, and probably you know getting a little frustrated by it but it doesn't feel like the i think if you rolled horribly all game long it really could impact your ability to win the game for sure. Uh, but it, it just does because of the way it, it, you get the kickback 
uh, when you fail, which are like almost as good as the action itself yeah. in, in many cases. Uh, it really doesn't feel that bad to fail, but it still feels super annoying. Uh, so I just, I think it sits in a really nice place where it just adds this fun element. Like, you know, like a the fun, the simple joy of like rolling dice and playing game that makes the whole experience a little bit more lighthearted than it would be otherwise as just this like purely no luck euro or very minimal luck we've talked about it in the past too jake but the spectacle of rolling a dice is something that everyone at the table can share so for a game where my criticism is you're feeling too solitary i love that this mechanism just gives a single thing that you do that everyone at the table can look at for a second and share that experience and yeah when you go to hunt and you roll a one boom it feels so good like it feels amazing Yeah. yeah and just having those moments where it's like i just rolled three eights in a row like i'm totally snake bit it's like that's going to be the thing that you remember most from the play um and it's nice to have a game that like does kind of create those those memories i love too that the game incentivizes it like you with pillaging too pillaging is a later game sort of inverse version of this that allows you to get these gray special tiles that represent objects like hammers and helmets and shields and cups and crowns and there's only one of each in the game so you really covet them you really want them they're hyper efficient they're also cool it feels really cool to get the little statue plop it into your board it's the only version that's not sort of All the other tiles in the game are regular squares. Maybe they're one by twos or one by threes or two by threes, or like Jake said, three by threes. Some of the blue ones get really big, but these non-regular shapes are so helpful that the game really says, okay, just do it. Just have fun. Go roll the dice, try to pillage. Um, And I like that the game does that and it makes it fun. I, I don't know. It's just, it's another example of the design sort of saying, just like do the fun stuff. It also adds like, it makes it, just like a little bit of a clown car in your little house that you're doing because it like makes the puzzle harder. It makes the puzzle harder because they're like awkward shapes, but also like you have this crown in your shed that is as large (laughs) as like three cows, you know? And it's like, okay, what, wait, wait a second. This is what's going on with this crown. So I think that just kind of, again, it, it doesn't actually change the play of the game, but it just adds this like little bit of lightheartedness uh, and, and humor to that sort of reminds you like, oh yeah, we're playing a game. Look how absurd this is. Do you think the dice rolling systems foster interesting decisions? Are the decisions more interesting for them existing than they would if they were just like more spaces where no matter you always go there, you're always going to succeed? I do. I mean, I think you have to enjoy that. And, uh-huh. and enjoy a little bit of like playing the odds again, because of, as, as I said before, a feast for Odin truly gives you the opportunity to, to play with the decision space, how you want. If you don't want to pursue hunting and, and pillaging, uh, there, there are definitely other avenues you can take and you could be successful without ever sniffing those actions. Um, but for those who do enjoy playing the odds, you know, like I just said with that example, like, when you've rolled a four and you can uh, succeed, but it costs a lot, or you can maybe you want to fail because it's at that cost, it's just not worth it. Like I think that is a really interesting uh, and exciting decision space that you don't get elsewhere in the game. I, I definitely think that the uncertainty isn't very important. And I love that the degree of risk is variable. And I think that creates some of the most interesting decisions in the game, right? I know that you probably want to go to the trapping space. There's only one trapping space. Find that that one is one that typically you're having competition around. Do I go now? Or can I wait a little longer and claim one of the other spaces sooner? I I think that they're designed really well. And I think it also plays into this If there's one theme of A Feast for Odin, I think the theme is sort of like an exploration of the vagaries of life and like how uncertainty can kind of ruin your day. And that's played out with the occupation deck too. And it appears here. And I think that's just the theme that no two plays are going to be exactly the same. Can we talk about the occupation deck? So the occupation deck is like, I don't even know, 300 cards or something. It's it's ridiculous. It's comically massive. The, The board game comes with like its own special like occupation appendix so you can look up every single one um and i think maybe even more added in norwegian so anyway you just have this like hilariously large stack so the first time i ever played this game i was the flax baker which meant 
I think like every time there was a harvest with flax, I got to exchange it for a, like a resource, like the bread or something like that. Like some resource that was just like slightly one cube better. Uh, and it was really, that was just like up to me. It just cracked me up because it's just like the smallest possible, like special power or whatever. And I was like, kind of making these jokes about it. Like, yeah, I'm the flax baker. That's my profession. You know, I just love baking flax. And I played this game the second time ever in person. The person next to me, like, revealed, like, Flax Baker. I was just like, nice, man. You're going to have That's a good awesome. time with that. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it's just like a, a small world moment within a board game, <laughs> which is, like, literally a small world. Totally. When I, which itself is a small world. Yeah. When I, when we were first playing a piece for Jake, the occupation deck infuriated me. I was like, this is so dumb. Like, these are signposts. They're supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do in the game. There's so many that I can't meaningfully ever, like I'll never be able to put together what my specific strategy could be and try to do that again because there's 300 of these in the deck. Like I just didn't really get it, right? In a different game, they'd be more focused and they'd be something that you could talk about as you build out these more interesting and nuanced strategic paths. And I think as I played the game more, I realized, no, like this is another system like the dice rolling where this is enabling the simulation of like, the vagaries of life. And we're going to talk about like just this randomness and having the game feel really different each time. Um, And I've come to appreciate them a lot more. And I also like that they're a system that it feels like you can just ignore it. You kind of can ignore it and still play the game really effectively, or you can build whole strategies around getting lots of occupations and upgrading lots of different actions that you're doing early on such that you get the snowball rolling of that positive agency feedback loop where the more you do, the more you get. So the more you can do through the occupation card specifically. And I like that this game lets you push like, okay, this direction, we're just going to be a really productive group of working individuals and put down tons of occupations. And like, that feels great. Or some games, maybe I don't play an occupation card at all, or maybe I just never end up getting one that makes sense for me to play. And that's okay because there's other things that are equally as good and interesting for me to do. So it doesn't matter if some games, the signposts of my occupation cards lead me nowhere. There's enough signposts elsewhere that I'll just follow one of those. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an area where there is randomness. Some are just better than others. And some each, each occupation is worth between zero and three points. So at the end of the game, when you draw an occupation, if you if you get one that's not worth a lot of points, but you know has a really strong passive ability, it's worthless to you. Where if you draw one that's uh, worth three points at the end of the game, like that's three points, that's great. Um, and it's worth mentioning too that this is an area that is sort of uh, patched in the uh, Norwegian's expansion. So if that sounds annoying to you when you're playing the norwegian expansion you always have the opportunity whenever you take an action that allows you to play an occupation i think i'm getting this right you can instead discard an occupation from your hand and just take four points nice so it just smooths it out a little bit um to to again just like if you don't want to play in that like random space you don't have to in this game uh and it also is another area where like what's so great and robust about this system is it really feels like you can pick any single aspect of the game and like this game i'm gonna lean into that and even something as small as occupations the last time i played in person on my birthday my friend trenton i think ended the game with like 14 occupations out like just something like totally absurd um that i you know i would have never even like considered and i don't know i don't think he won but i think he ended up maybe getting second place and, and scoring pretty well um and or on the other hand like we played with uh somebody from our discord called beer for dad and he approached the game in a way that i had never like considered at all as possible where he like literally did not ever build out and expand his original home board he like did only exploration boards like ending the game with an income on it of his home board of, of like two or something. Yep. It's so crazy that the game is flexible enough to allow that these like completely off the wall strategies. I'm not sure that one is like going to be viable at top level play, but I think he'd end up doing like reasonably well again, pursuing that. 
I love to. There's so few board games because of the demands of efficiency of a lot of Euro games to become really narrow, specific paths of how you approach them. And I think if Feast for Odin is sort of the diametrical opposite of this, where the more you play, the more you can sort of express yourself and how you want to play this game. And I love that this is a, a modern Euro that leaves room for me to put a piece myself in, in play. Like some of the other people that we've played with, I, I see these sort of trends coming out of like, oh, um, this player, Joe, really loves... Uh, immigration and sending his Vikings off. And this is this system's also really cool. It's a way that you can flip your boats over and you get this huge payoff of boats for them. And you do it in such a way, this is another way that that banquet is theater in my mind. Because you do it by flipping your boat, one of them over onto the banquet hall. So the number of mouths you have to feed becomes uh, a little bit less. You've sent those Vikings away. And yes, like it's, you have to feed less. But what's more important is the fact that you gave up the boat that like unlocks the really powerful other options. So that's why I say it's another example of them using the banquet hall as this sort of uh, metaphor for helping you understand what actions are and what they're doing while having more interesting emergent consequences elsewhere within the systems. And it's just brilliant. Like I actually love the puzzle, Jake, of the immigration and getting rid of one of my boats, this uh, key to unlock more powerful actions and figuring out the timing of that when to do it there's only so many of those spaces so that's one place where you really do feel people pushing up and elbowing against each other especially later in the game um i just find that's really fun i think a whole game could be built around that idea of like when do you try to do this totally yeah and, and even you saying that now makes me think like oh i meant i want to like pursue that path like what yeah. if i like do an immigration in like the second round of the game or try and fill up like my whole board with like emigration or as much as possible like yep. what would happen if i pursued that strategy um and yeah I, I do i mean i agree i think it's like a triumph of the game that it more than any other game that i've played and i, I know there are other out there that uh, uh, try to achieve the same thing and maybe do just as well or better that i haven't played but like it really feels like we're playing in a sandbox mm-hmm. you know no yeah. What do you mean when you say that too? Just to like summarize, like what is, what makes this evoke a sandbox experience for you that other games don't? Yeah. So I was thinking about that and I kind of want to bring, recall our discussion on objectives in games. Cause I was kind of thinking like, what is the objective in this game? Like, is it a, oh, is it like all, it almost feels like it could be a solitary game where all you're really trying to do is like fill up your home board and expansion boards um but of course like as you play the game uh by getting expansion boards and like getting occupations like that's kind of overlaying on top of this base puzzle that's going to improve other uh actions but at the same time as a juxtaposed like we discussed is typical of more like of a juxtaposed objective game like there are different paths you want to explore and i think that ultimately uh thinking through that helps me understand like why this game feels like a sandbox which is like it's really the only game i can think of that has different paths that you can like choose to explore but they're not really prescribed by a specific objective in the game yeah. Does that make sense? It definitely does. And I think that decisions like the feast almost being taken care of for you, and you can increase its efficiency, yes, is part of that giving you that flexibility and that free sense of movement that I think of being tied to a sandbox game, where so many other games, you're responding to the game. And I think a lot of a feast for Odin is you get to have the game respond to you and what you want to do within it. And certainly its scope is a part of that too, right? Just the sheer size of it gives you the room to explore in these different directions that I think without it being as large of a decision space as it is, just objectively, you wouldn't have that sense of freedom to explore in all these different directions. Heck, we barely talked about animals, which are cool. But I think part of that too is that a lot of our plays have been on board game arena. And I think animals become much more interesting in the Norwegian's expansion. Yeah, more more types of animals and that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I it's like maybe it's though as though there is like a solitary objective but that solitary objective is so large that you can't see it all at one time you know so it's like when you're pursuing these different paths it's always relating back to that same original puzzle it's not like 
oh, like I'm going down the immigration track and, you know, getting to the top of the immigration track and getting points that way. It's like, no, like it's tied fundamentally back into that same puzzle Mm. of like putting food, like, right, like you said, it takes space on the feast board. So you don't use as much food on that board. So that's food that you can then upgrade and turn into, you know, goods that can go into your other boards to like enhance your exploration and income or whatever, right? It, so it's, uh, I mean, it's just such a fascinating game. And I kind of think because of like the breadth of options, even if the decision space, as we've talked about at length, is like reined in, like the breadth of options, like, really creates a yeah like a wholly unique sandbox ex- sandbox experience um unlike anything else i've tried i'd really be curious to hear like what other people think i should try next uh, mm. if there are other games that they feel like evoke that same uh sort of uh decision space that same sort of play experience because i'd be really keen to give them a shot I think you just hit on something really, really important too, just by bringing the discussion of objectives into the discussion of, is this a sandbox game too, Jake? Because I think part of that that you've just made me realize, like, is that switching paths, because there aren't really paths, there kind of are, is so flexible that, right, if this game directed you down, okay, this game you're doing immigration and that's what you have to do and you have to pursue it as hard as you can. And if you make it the furthest down this path, you'll probably win. And a lot of games play this way. You're doing this strategy, this game. You're, you're just pushing on animals as hard as you can. And you can do that in a feast road and you can push on animals as hard as you can. But you can also just get one animal and then do something else. And, and it doesn't punish you that much. There's viable strategies between pivoting between these different things so freely. And I think that freedom to pivot between potential strategic paths so flexibly in A Feast for Odin, because everything is just about as as good-ish, kind of. You can piece together something good, gives you that sense of freedom to move however you'd like through the space. It's it's cool. That's interesting. It's awesome. Well, Brendan, do you have any final thoughts as we approach the end of our discussion on Uwe Rosenberg? I think it's been a really interesting and enlightening discussion. So I hope that folks have enjoyed uh, listening along at home. As always, please jump in our Discord, jump into the Board Game Geek post and and let us know uh, your thoughts, what your final thoughts are uh, about this discussion too. Because, you know, as always, that's just going to... We hope these episodes kick off a discussion that's going to continue to enhance our understanding of this game and, of course, other games that will follow. But, Brendan, what are your final thoughts? I'd love to hear, too, what your favorite favorite action spot is in the whole game. And I want to hear everyone who listened to the episode. I'd be really curious to hear a discussion of this in the Discord. Like, what's your favorite space on the board, Jay? And I'll tell you Mm. mine. The, the space I see myself valuing higher than other people because I take this like mm. it feels like almost every round is the space that's just like one worker gained two resources from any of the mountain strips. I just mm. find myself always taking that and always thinking it's a good value and also trying to like set up little plays for it by like one round ahead where think okay if i could be like last here and do this action then that'll leave me an ore and two silver that i can take mm. with my first turn and i feel like a lot of my gameplay revolves around that i really love the mountain strip puzzle just while we touched on it really quickly i think the idea that there's all of these different strips juxtaposed and what you take reveals new things for other people adds this degree of interaction where like yes the board is really open but actually the interaction on that piece of the board is pretty focused and tight i think that's interesting um yeah, I love the mountain strip puzzle. It's it's great. My favorite space is when I'm just like completely not factoring in strategy. I love that I can just pay three Vikings and take a gray tile if I pay one ore. Um, I think it's not that good of a space. I think in general, it's costed to be pretty inefficient. But I like that if I really need a specific gray tile, like if I've created this perfect slot that I could fit that little piece into, that it lets me just go snag it. And there's I like that it's the the opposite of the dice rolling. It gives me certainty, and that's cool. Um, I also, I don't know. I'm in such a stand for that upgrade as many green tiles as you have, even <laughs> though I know it's bad, just because it feels so good to like flip five things over to blue. Um, yeah. It feels efficient, even though I know it's not. I also like building houses. I don't know. And sending people away. It's like everything feel like, maybe that's kind of the takeaway. It's like everything you do, it feels good because everything is beneficial to you. Um, and it, it's just... You know, again, it's fun to play over here one game and play over here the next game. 
It's Even great. though it's not good and you shouldn't be in this situation too, I love the the sensation of just taking coins and plopping them down on minus ones at the end of the game. <laughs> that feels good. It feels really good. It's like this cherry on top of the end of the game where Uve is just like sending you off with this delightful last treat. Even if it doesn't feel great, the fact that you get income at the end and it's like, okay, go ham, plug in all the holes. It's like, here's a big load of bubble wrap, go to town and then the game's over. And I, Even though you're not actually getting any points because it's like you're get because the coins are worth one yeah yeah no totally it's, it's just it's just like satisfying to it's do satisfying. it yeah. yeah 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 totally well my last thought i just i famously have a group of friends that we play bruges together all the time constantly these games that we just chain together for months and months and months uh and i have introduced them to a feast for odin on board game arena and they love it and they've been like i was playing a solo game like trying to figure it out and it just makes me like so happy uh to be able to show this game to this other group of people uh and that you know because i know that the type of gamers they are they're just going to be like digging into this puzzle and diving deep on it for years to come uh so that you know the fact that they enjoy it this much is honestly like the highest recommendation i can give of it to anyone that y'all are going to be playing this game for for literally the next half decade, given how deep you dive into Bruges. So that's, that's, that's right. amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to, yeah, I don't know. Good, good episode. I want to hear from yeah. people though. There's so much that we could talk about about this game. So I want to hear what you love most about A Feast for Odin. All right. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Brendan, thank you so much for joining. As always, uh, you can find Brendan on Twitter at BurnsideBH. I'm on Twitter at Jake Freed. Uh, our podcast is on Twitter at DecisionSPA. Uh, we also have an email at DecisionSPA at gmail.com that we would love to read and respond to anything you send us. Uh, and lastly, join our Discord. Thank you, Hembry, for our intro and outro music. Reach out. We will see y'all next week. Ahoy, ahoy.